All right. So welcome. We are here with Dr. Tina Shermer Sellers. I think I'm saying that correctly. And um, we might ostensibly be on my Pleasure for Health podcast or uh, Pleasure for Health YouTube channel. And uh, Tina, you probably have some some ways of usually that you reach people. Do you want to let let uh, listeners know where that is? Sure, sure. Um, I'm on Instagram at Dr. Tina Shameless, D-R-T-I-N-A, Shameless. And um, I have a website that is my name. So just tinashermersellers.com. And then I have two books we may talk about that um, have to do with uh, how America, maybe North America became sexually negative and how it was actually meant to be sex positive. What were the messages and the stories we didn't tend to hear that if we had heard might've made a difference for us. How do you heal sexual shame? And then how you um, integrate sexuality and spirituality in a way that feels good to you, um, which there are all kinds of ways that people do that. Um, so that's in that book, Sex, God, and the Conservative Church, Erasing Shame from Sexual Intimacy. And then I wrote Shameless Parenting, Everything You Need to Raise Shame-Free, Confident Kids and Heal Your Shame Too. And that was just because I heard from so many people that said, I don't want to do to my kids what was done to me. Can you help me? And I said, I got you. I'll write a book that'll be really like a workbook and it'll be easy to work with. And you can just take it off the shelf every couple of years and it'll put you two years ahead of your kid. And if you just stay there, you'll be, you'll be able to change. I like that, that book, what to expect when you're expecting, which is one of my yeah. favorite books during pregnancy. Absolutely. Mine too. And I kind of think of this book, Shameless Parenting as a lot like that. You know, it kind of says, here's birth to two. What you need to know, how you heal, what they need, what their curiosities are going to be. Here's the top books for them and the top books for you in these two years. And then it goes, you know, two to four, four to six, six to eight, all the way up to 18. So it just makes it really easy, you know, because parenting is pretty overwhelming. And especially if we're trying to change a legacy, it's exhausting. And we really want somebody kind of holding our hand. So that's the way. Yeah, especially around, up. I think these days, you're right, the body image and the body uh, shaming and who are we as as humans and all of all of those questions. And you would put a quote on your website here that you want people everywhere to live shamelessly as sexual beings, knowing they deserve connection and pleasure. And I think that's a big message of mine as well is that, you know, Pleasure is not everything on the surface, but there needs to be some pleasure in life. And we need to know how to access that as a balance to mm. um, other stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, when we watch children play little ones, they're all about connection and pleasure. Mm-hmm. And I really think that that's kind of core. And if you walk down the halls of an Alzheimer's unit, you'll see that too. And just think at the core humans want to feel seen, known, loved, and accepted. And they want to play. They want to have pleasure. They want to experience joy. They want to, you know, just like be in the moment of something really sweet. And I think that sometimes we get talked out of how important that is, just like we can with leisure or recreation, you know, that those are important parts of the human experience and they bring us joy. Yeah. So what, so what really interests me actually, and, you know, we're just chatting for the first time here too. So I'm learning along with all the listeners here, but um, 
you know, how does shame, because I know a lot of your work is, is around shame. How yeah. does shame come up as like the monster that we have to kind of get past? Right. Yeah. That's a super good question. Um, you know, I, I have come to believe that shame, that sexual shame is actually like our first shame. So what shame is different from guilt is it's when we are, and we're often children, though not always, I mean, we can experience shame as an adult as well, but it, it, we are acting from a place of innocence. We're doing something that we think is just normal or fine or ourselves or whatever with children, you know, they're in that place a lot. We can be in that place when as adults, if we're doing something out of the goodness of our heart and somebody takes offense to it, often the feeling we feel is shame. Like, what did I get in trouble for? I, I don't understand because my heart was open. Right. And with little ones, it's a lot that, you know, and I think sexual shame is often our first shame, at least in America, where we have these long histories, long epigenetics of people who got shamed for just having their own particular curiosities. And so it shows up in ways like somewhere between 10 months and a year, a child's hand, they start to gain control over it, stops hitting them and they are able to reach for something and grab it and pull it in, you know, or whatever. And shortly after that time, their hands are going to land on their genitals when they're in the tub or they're getting their diaper changed. Right. And that is a great day for them because you have so many wonderful nerve endings in that part of your body. And so immediately they're like pleasure. Oh, that feels wonderful. And unless their caregiver is able to say, Oh, that's your vulva. It's a wonderful part of you. Or that's your penis. It's a wonderful part of you and finish, you know, washing them or whatever you do. If instead what a child gets is, you know, kind of a growl or a stop that that's gross or don't touch that or slaps their hand away. And the child absorbs not just what's said and done, but they absorb the energy of the parent, of the caregiver, that anxiety, that anger, they absorb that. And that happens hundreds of times until they're about five and they get in trouble maybe for playing doctor. And that one they remember because their brain is developed enough now and it goes, they go underground with it, right? But the meaning they've been making all along is, I don't know why I'm getting in trouble. It must be me. Something must be fundamentally wrong with me. And that's what shame is. It hits us at the core of our understanding of who we are as our identity. And we recently did, or recently, it wasn't until 2017, we actually did research on an operational definition for sexual shame. We did not have one prior to that, believe it or not. We had some for shame as we know with the work of Brene Brown, but I'm going to read for you and, and for your audience what this definition says, because I think it's important to understand how sexual shame impacts our lives. The definition goes, sexual shame is a visceral feeling of humiliation and disgust toward one's own body and one's identity as a sexual being and a belief that you are abnormal, inferior, and unworthy. This feeling can be internalized, but it also manifests in our interpersonal relationships. So that's where it begins. It's between us as a baby or infant and someone else. 
having a negative impact on trust, communication, and physical and emotional intimacy. So it stays with us, right? And it stays with us in part because the definition goes on to say sexual shame develops across the lifespan in interactions with interpersonal relationships, then one's culture and society and creates a subsequent critical self-appraisal. So that inner critic gets going between what we experienced as we were growing up, then all the things that culture tells us that aren't right about us. And then the inner critic gets going. Then it goes on to say, There is also a fear and uncertainty related to one's power or right to make decisions, including safety decisions related to sexual encounters, along along with an internalized judgment toward one's own sexual desire. So in other words, and we know this from the work of Peggy Ornstein in her book, Girls and Sex, and she did all that research, that girls can feel like 15 to 22 year olds can feel confident in every area of their life until they get ready to go out. And then they're putting down three, four, and five shots of hard liquor because they don't know if they can keep themselves safe or if they have the right to keep themselves safe. And in her work, as in the work with this research, the vast majority of the people that were interviewed were did not come from religious backgrounds. But when we add religiosity on top of it, or, or conservative religi- religious mindset or whatever, there is this sense that I'm bad if I think about sexuality, if I do anything sexual, if I want anything sexual, I must be bad to my core. So that compounds what is already incredibly impactful to our ability to do attachment, just Mm -hmm. trust, just love, give love, receive love, right? Which is, I think, at the core of what brings human happiness is our ability to do relationships well. Yeah, well, there's a lot there to kind of unpack and and delve into for sure. <clears throat> so it's interesting to me that I think you you termed that all, mostly sexual shame. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a difference between what you would term sexual shame and then just shame, or would you say it was all? Because it kind of felt like it was maybe just all like body shames. Like, is it all one thing to, in your yeah. mind? That's, you know, I think that the core of where it attacks us inside is very similar in that shame makes us feel like something's fundamentally wrong with who we are as a human, who we are as a person. Sexual shame expands that. So it starts there, but it expands it out to my ability to love, to attach, to um, share myself, share my thoughts, my feelings, my body, right? To... The, the sense that I am worthy of being wanted, right? It kind of expands into that area of intimacy mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and affects people in, in that realm, as well as when they're just out running around outside, you know, not in a relationship or just doing their thing and still feeling badly about themselves or, you know, thinking something. Because often we're thinking these things in our head too, even if we're not, you know, in a relationship. Yeah, kind of a model I've seen, which, um, you know, I've studied bioenergetics analysis, which Mm -hmm. is a somatic psychotherapy um, practice, but there's this kind of, you know, we're reaching out on this one side and we hit a no of some kind. And Mm -hmm. therein lies, you know, when you hit that no, what happens? And you're saying, I think that if the no is a reasonable kind of response to 
what's happening, you know, you got to keep a kid safe or whatever. Right, right. You know, there's there's helpful no's. Yes. <laughs> and then there's a no that potentially the parent, you know, meeting a child's innocent reaching and um, that would be f- potentially carrying some kind of emotional component right. themselves mm-hmm. or some kind of well, potentially fear, shame, whatever the parent was carrying. Is that kind of? Yes, yes. And so the their, their innocence, the child's innocence is met with something that they can't quite comprehend, right? They can't comprehend the magnitude of the, like, why fear, big fear, shame, big shame, this big emotion. I don't know. It must be right. me. And they're young enough that this is all, of course, where it starts that they generalize it all to them. Right. It's interesting because I've had I've had particularly men actually come to my practice that were, you know, new fathers or or hoping to have babies. And they actually were looking for support in in working with their own shame in order to do things like help with changing diapers and stuff without having that stuff come up and be transmitted to their child. And I think potentially this is shame. I don't know. You can expand on this, but it, to me, it sounded like they were feeling um, afraid of their own sexual response to their child, you know, or mm-hmm. what happens when I see, you know, um, my child's genitals or whatever. So right. you know, is that something that you've seen or worked with? Sure. And I think it is, again, that combination of some of the messages that people get growing up on top of a lack of knowledge, right? And so if we just take, you know, a a common situation of a young boy who never gets to babysit, right? Maybe doesn't, isn't asked to help her out around bath time or other kinds of things. And so they feel like I, that's, that, that must not be good. It all gets sexualized. You know, some research says that boys are taken off laps as soon as six years old and they're not hugged. After that point, everything gets sexualized beyond that point. And then there's a cultural message that boys are given that says, boys will be boys. You're going to get in trouble with your sexuality. It's going to be too big. You're going to have to learn to manage, you know, kind of like, you know, and, and then girls are often given the message that they're responsible to keep boys under control. Right. And so boys hear this too. So they're afraid of their own feelings. Right. Mm -hmm. Then on top of that, we don't let them have feelings, we'll let them do anger, and that's about it. And so we don't help them in knowing how to voice their feelings, recognize them, talk about them, all of this. And so they bring all that naivete and fear and unknown, right, into parenting. And so those are all such normal questions. Like I'm always applauding men when they're asking this, like, good for you. I know we did not do you any favors in this department. We got some making up time to do. Let's do that so that you can celebrate the beauty of your children, no matter their genders, no matter what you can celebrate the uniqueness of each of them and delight in it and feel completely safe inside your own self. You know, where you begin and end, you know, how to self-soothe, you know, how to notice thoughts and feelings, you know, how to make choices, you know, you can just feel you, you are safe. You can be a safe, loving parent. Well, that sounds amazing. I think I should sign up all the parents <laughs> <laughs> right now. Yeah, for sure. Cause I think, um, like you said, parenting is so fraught with 
fears as it is that um, when we bring our own body fears around our own sexuality to parenting, now we're meeting our own children's innocent reaching out with, with, like you said, I think that makes a lot of sense. The large emotions that whatever they are, um, I could see any large emotions kind of causing this stop or know that the child just doesn't understand. And so that gets translated into shame. I think that's what you were. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it may not be shame with the parent, but it might be shame. And for many people it is, you know, they think, oh gosh, when I think about my child finding their genitals, that feels scary to me. Do I have to worry that they're going to have a problem with masturbation or blah, 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 you know, or if they find porn somehow, oh my gosh, is that going to, it's like, again, that's the combination of a lack of education plus all the ways that their natural innocence was probably hurt along the way. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so I'm going to jump because this is how my brain works. <laughs> so the other thing that interested me was this in the definition there, you'll have to maybe remind me the exact yeah. wording, but I had something down this visceral feeling of disgust towards one's own body. Mm-hmm. And I found that fascinating because you know, disgust is one of those emotions that we don't often talk about, mm-hmm. but it's really basic to uh, how we're made up. We're, we're kind of biologically wired to have a disgust towards maybe things that would cause disease or something like that. So, so just tell me a little bit more about this feel like, how did you come up with that as a, as part of the definition? And- well, that came out of the the research. So out of interviewing many, many, many people and this feeling and description just kept coming up. And, and um, so, um, you know, people feeling like, Oh, I feel kind of disgusted about my, my vaginal area or my vulva. That's kind of disgusting to me. Or in this kind of, eh, kind of feeling was coming up over and over and over again. And I, I, I think that it comes so much from the, there are messages that people are getting that um, they're, you know, things about their bodies are gross or are perverted or are whatever. And that there's a, a normal quote unquote way to be or way to be sexual or way to be in your body or whatever. And I do think that women more than men get uh, people that identify being women or being socialized female, they um, are getting more messages about parts of their body being disgusting. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then I think uh, people that are, that identify male and have been socialized male might not have as much of that, but I've still seen it in different people that I've worked with. Right. And they're like, Oh yeah, I don't like this part of my body. I don't like that same. I'm not good enough, you know, the way that I am. So, yeah. yeah I'm, I'm interested too, cause I work somatically a lot and um, you know, between disgust, which is this kind of pulling back and up out of the body yeah. and then collapse where you're kind of giving up depression, you know, whatever, which is maybe the opposites. So if you think about sort of pulling up and out of the body, that would kind of 
make us it's impossible to have pleasure in your body if you're pulling up and out of your body so do you have anything you would add to that kind of somatic understanding no I like that I think that that's really interesting and and I do think that's it and I think the way that it often plays out with a person is they dissociate from that part of their body Mm -hmm. they just they're like uh you know so I'm so I'm not dealing with it. If somebody else deals with it, I'm not going to kind of be there for it kind of a thing, you know? So right. I do think that up and out is, is accurate for how people are in response to an area of their body that they feel disgust about. Mm-hmm. I think humiliation is another interesting thing to think about because it's another, you know, visceral feeling that people feel. And I don't know what you think about that and where that is sort of somatically, but um, it, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's more of an embarrassing kind of, yeah, it's more of a sinking feeling. Sinking. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So interestingly, you know, coming out either end, whether you go up or down, it's not, it's not in the middle where your genitals and pleasure right. centers are. That's right. And where your heart is like, you know, you kind of wanted to have this, you know, integrated experience. And by that, I mean that you're experiencing something from it, right. That you can take something from it that you're glad for, pleased with whatever. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, that's, that's interesting. So in your world, I know you've, you spent decades working with, with, as a clinician with, with clients, you know, how would you work with disgust? You know, it seems like such a a strong feeling that would be difficult to, to kind of help someone get over. Cause I've known lots of people that, you know, you're disgusted at a certain thing or whatever. It's very difficult to ever kind of get out of that. Do you have any, I mean, in, in a few minutes, can you give us some insight into how you, one might work with that? Yeah. I think that w- one way is to um, begin to just be curious about, where did those ideas, where did the feelings first arise? Where did the ideas around them first arise and do a little bit of deconstruction work and then actually begin to get them to sort of step towards challenging those notions through the acts of doing things. Like, was it disgusting to play in mud? you know, and who said it was a disgusting plate in mud, you know, and then what was disgusting about it, you know, and then is there anything with your hands that you can imagine being messy with that would get on the edge of disgusting, but not quite too bad. You could still stay present with it. And you kind of play around with, okay, so we do finger painting or whatever. Can we start, you know, playing around with this? And, and in all of that, what we're doing is we are saying we learned some things that actually were counterintuitive to joy. Mm-hmm. And we can unlearn them too. We have wonderfully plastic brains that love to relearn things. So we can do that and it might take a little bit, but we can do that. And we can be paying attention to our bodies and our thoughts and our feelings as we do these things, you know, and slowly we can help diminish that experience of disgust and maybe put in a little bit of awe and wonder, a little bit of curiosity. Yeah, I love the idea of curiosity and awe and these types of it it actually becomes more of a spiritual mm-hmm. conversation with some of the, those types of words. So that's interesting. 
I was wondering, it just occurred to me as you were, as you were saying that, that it, it, it sounds very much like a, almost like an OCD kind of obsessive worry about messiness, which, you know, I know, you know, causes some people to be like, ooh, like sex or whatever. <laughs> Have you seen any kind of correlation between like a rise in, you know, obsessive cleanliness or, or compulsivity and, and you know, this kind of shame or, or distancing from pleasure and sexuality? Uh, well, different people respond differently. So I, I have often said that in, in places where we have highly conservative homes, conservative religious homes, some of kids who are born into those homes or into very um, sort of strict thinking around bodies and sexuality, they have that. And then if they also are a, a slightly anxious child or more earnest child, it's like they're a sponge that has more capacity to absorb. Mm. And so some of those kids, as they are approaching adulthood, have pelvic floor issues, pelvic pain issues, erectile dysfunction, real body fear of being in challenging any of that. So being going out on a date or anything like that just is really scary and hard to imagine. And then often it gets this critic going, what's wrong with you? How come you're not like anybody else? You know, all of that, which of course, isn't the case. They're not alone. There's lots of people who struggle with that. And it has to do with, they learned things about themselves and their body that it, it's such a tender age that as that developed over time, it becomes a problem for them, but um, it, it was not their doing, right. It was not their doing. So mm -hmm. um, I, yeah, I think that um, that's what often happens. I'm not sure about that. Um, yeah. I don't know if I answered. No, I could see the tie-in between anxiety and and that sort of fundamentalist kind of or very strict, rigid mm -hmm. way of thinking would thinking. would would uh, you know take those. There might be the rebellious kids that might do something. Oh sure, yeah, yeah, and so and that's really I look at that um, and see that as a form of resiliency in them. You know, mm -hmm. kids that have a bit of that rebellious nature, they're they're putting their own kinds of stops on things in their own way. And that speaks to us a, a part of them that feels independent of a thinking, you know? Right. And right. I, I think of that as, as really protective of them. Yeah. You feel like that rebelliousness versus anxious child. Is that just an innate thing that you've seen in a, you know, children's personalities or, or is that something also that's maybe, um, born out of. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. You know, that's the age old nature nurture question. Right. And I do think that the nature of a child is, it's very predictive. Like it has some qualities to it, but you can also take a child and like break their spirit. You know, you mm -hmm. can take a child that's strong and then you can just beat it out of them and they have learned helplessness right on the other side. Right. of that. So we know that we can do that to a developing person. So um, but I, but anybody that's been around kids or has their own kids know that kids have their bents 
and they're not identical to each other, you know, and, um, and they may have had the same home environment and they can be very different in how they respond. And so nature is powerful for sure. Right. Right. Yeah. Interesting. I was thinking too, that, that sort of rigidity that, um, you know, you mentioned at the beginning too, maybe in America, I don't know if we want to put a country to this. Cause I think it's, it's, you know, maybe there in many different places in the world and cultures. Um, what do you think, you know, I, I'll just put it out there. I wrote a paper on fundamentalist thought, you know, arising out of a fear of chaos in a way. Okay. And, you know, do you think that these types of systems where we're trying to like fit the mold and, and sort of work our kids and ourselves into this kind of rigid, do you think that comes from, you know, the fear of chaos. And in a way you could almost say sexuality and pleasure and thing is about chaos. I don't know. That's maybe yeah. something I would say. Yeah. <laughs> what, do you think, what do you think of those two and how would you? Put well, I think that that's interesting. I, 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 yeah, I love that idea. And I love, would love to play with that a little bit. There is one of the stories. So I have a sex positive chapter that pulls stuff from ancient Jewish thinking. That's really beautiful and sex positive. And one of the stories that I thought was lovely and interesting and very old, like from 500 BC, um, is a story about um, in this particular village, there were rabbi who were really concerned with how people were living out their sexuality. It was very concerning to them. They did not like it. They thought it was dangerous or whatever. So they go into the Holy of Holies. They beg God to take it away to just make it easier on everybody. And God says, no. And they ask God over and over again. And God keeps saying no. And finally God says, acquiesces and says, fine. And out of the Holy of Holies goes this lion of fire spirit goes across the whole village. And the next morning, nobody's going to work. The artists aren't creating, the bakers aren't baking. Everybody is like in this deep depression across the entire village. Like the hens aren't even laying eggs. I mean, it's just like gone. Right. And so they're like, whoa, okay. There's some connection between sexual desire and creativity or, you know, mm. like life. So they mm. go back and they say to God, okay, we get something's going on here. Can you just, um, can you do something about it and just do keep, you know, take the sexual desire away and leave the other stuff there. And God says, no, with every great gift I give you, I give you the responsibility to manage it. It's just mm. the way it is. And, um, and they're like, okay, fine. Just give it to us a little less. That's how the story goes. But what I love about that story is, and this is true in, in much of Jewish thought is that desire is recognized as a big thing, a big emotion, right? It's a big thing, but it's not seen as bad in and of itself. It's mm -hmm. seen as something that you have to manage, have it serve love, have it serve justice, right? But means that you've got to stay in charge of it, right? Mm -hmm. And um, and I I love I love that idea. So I think that this idea of fear of chaos can be there because it is a big feeling. It is a big emotion. And we have to, we have to have instruction on how do you manage yourself in it? You know, mm -hmm. it ought to be a conversation we're having with our kids all the time as they're growing up, how they manage their big emotion. And then as their desire comes on board, how they manage that and why it's important to manage it, all of those things. It's really important, but 
But in Christianity, we've seen it as bad in and of itself. And that has not helped us learn how to manage it at all. Mm. Right. And, and I think that one of the reasons that that has been around for so long is that, um, that the, the, it, it allows patriarchy or the, the system of patriarchy to be in control of people's lives and sexuality, right? If I, if I don't teach you to manage it yourself, then maybe I can tell you, you can't manage it. And I have to be here to manage it for you. Hmm. And so I will do this and do that and do this and do that because, and, and I think that the church that conservative churches around the world have played that role in managing other people. And what they've done is they've overmanaged women and undermanaged men mm-hmm. so that the patriarchal system stays in check, right? The people who are in power continue to be men. They continue to cover up for each other. They continue to say, yes, if the women weren't around, you wouldn't be having that problem now, would you? You know, I mean, this kind of stuff has continued. And so there's a place at which it's more than just protecting us from chaos or helping us deal mm-hmm. with chaos. There's also a system that's being supported in how we're doing that and how we're managing the chaos piece, I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, you could take that right back to like, I know people don't say masculine, feminine anymore, but those two types of energies, the mm-hmm. feminine being creative, chaotic, whatever, mm-hmm. and the masculine yeah. being like a directive force, you know, whether that happens sure. in the genders or whatever but yeah, yeah I can kind of see what you're saying um it's interesting about the the management piece because my pondering about that having lived as a as a fundamentalist uh Muslim for you know 15 years or more is potentially that you know potentially somebody thought about it and they're like yeah we want to manage the women or whatever but I also think that there was something of a protective uh, a protective impulse. We want to protect you from having to manage your desire, <laughs> which I love that you brought that up, you know? Um, so we'll just make it easy. We'll just say, don't, you know, don't worry about managing it. We'll, you know, we'll give you this protective, just don't do any of these things and you'll be fine. You know, and in the religion, as I practiced it, you know, you don't drink because that, you know, one drink, well, it's not going to hurt you, but it will lead to the next drink or whatever. You wouldn't do this. You wouldn't do that. Um, Kind of stopping you from even having to experience working with that um, Mm -hmm. that edge of, well, where can I control myself and where can't I, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it's a, a, I don't think it's always been a a completely negative, like I want to hold you down I think it's sometimes I want to keep you safe yeah Mm -hmm. but I I don't know that was just that's kind of how I I, think yeah I know I think you're right and I I would challenge that it doesn't have a lot of good thinking in it necessarily in in that you know I'm going to protect you from it's because it become it can become so caretaking you know I'm going to do for you what you can do for yourself or right. what you can learn to do for yourself and building resilience right. in people and that kind of thing. Um, and I, and I think that there's a little bit of sort of savior thinking, like you need me to help you with this, you know, right. 
And and it would be one thing if we talked about it and could see across history that it really was the same between the genders, but it wasn't the same between the genders because when the men started messing up, we gave them excuses, right? We said, oh, of course there was a woman there or, mm-hmm. well, of course, you know, boys will be boys or we'll just, we won't talk about it or we'll put it underground or we'll, mm-hmm. we'll, you will just, we'll discipline you ourselves. We won't tell anybody. And then, but you, and you'll behave after this. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, um, and so I don't know that that has been anything other than trying to protect the people who are in control and in charge. And they're often men and that kind of thing, you know, it's a system and we're holding it together with that. But um, I do think that there is, not just protecting people, although I think that that's at the heart of the beginning of it, but I think it also became in lots of places protecting the systems and protecting. Yeah, the people. yeah. I, I think it's definitely rolled into some other things. Yeah. I wonder if um, it sounds a little bit like, you know, sometimes as parents, as we both are, <laughs> you sometimes end up doing that for your kids. How do you think that impacts how your children then, you know, we want to protect them from experiencing anything bad, you know, whether sexually or otherwise, um, are we stopping our kids from exploring their own edges? (laughs) Well, and, and, and yeah, and learning. Yes. I would say, yes. I think it's super difficult as parents to continually ask yourself, where's that line that my child is at developmentally right now between what they can do for themselves and where they can Mm -hmm. think and where I can provide places for them to learn and where it's, they're not there yet, or it's going to be dangerous or whatever. And that line is changing every month, if not every week, right? It's changing all the time. But when we, when we do for our kids, what they can do for themselves, even if it's out of a really good place of trying to protect them, what we communicate to them is I don't believe in you. Yeah. Right. And, um, and then you begin to think that other people are responsible for you. Mm-hmm. So you can easily become entitled and then mad at somebody. Cause you don't get the grade that you want mm-hmm. or you don't get something else that you want when you didn't do the work to get it. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think really understanding the difference between caretaking and loving is a really important thing to understand and that that line is changing all the time. So you might have a three-year-old who wants to climb a ladder and you're like, okay, I got you. I'm going to stand down here. So if you happen to fall, Mm -hmm. I will be here to catch you or to try to make it so you don't hurt yourself so much, but you're old enough to, I think, get up there, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and then we can start talking about how you get down. Let's stop right there. How would you get down? Let's go three more. How would you get down? And we're building the resilience and the Mm -hmm. capacity within them to solve that particular problem. I think that that's a gift because you're saying to them all the time that they're struggling to do that. You're like, I think you can, I totally believe in you. Right. Well, I think that that also builds self-respect. I've seen, I've heard that as a, you know, you have to just go just beyond what you thought you could do. And when you do yeah. it, yeah. you know, when you succeed, you get self-respect in it. And, and failing potentially is also important, you know, as a, yes. as a young person. Yeah. Because right. you can um, learn so much from, okay, so w- what didn't work? Let's learn from that. Let's do a little autopsy on that experience. 
<laughs> I love the idea between of of looking at that line between caretaking and loving. I think that would make it an amazing kind of study in and of itself. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I'm I'm just uh, kind of in in thinking of my own experience. I have four daughters. I don't know what what genders your children were, um, but working, you know, they didn't all reach the same stage at the same time, and you ha it was such a juggling, <laughs> such a juggling act. Yes, such a juggling act, and. and you know, for a parent, it's also, like you said, it brings up all your fears and all your, you know, what did I do? You know, we take it personally. What did I do wrong that you're in this mess? <laughs> so there's yeah. a, a lot about that. I don't know if you have any like words of wisdom for parents listening, you know, because especially yeah. through that sort of teenage stage, you're just <laughs> in a constant, a constant battle. <laughs> Right. Well, one of the things I think, and, and, and it's why I put together the shameless parenting book the way that I did, I put it together, you know, birth to two, two to four, four to six, up to 18. And, and the reason for that is that kids are changing all the time, but parenting can become a little bit easier, a little bit easier if we know what's in their job description for that two years. So, or whatever, you know, like generally speaking, you know, and so when they're pushing back or when they're going underground with something or when they're whatever, you can say, well, you're you're doing your individuation work in the context of your peers, of course. Right. Yes. Yeah. You know, and yeah, that was an interesting thing to do. How did that work for you? Did that work really well? Or what did you learn? You know, it helps to not take it as personally when we know part of their job is to figure some things out on their own. It doesn't have to do with me. It has to do with them mm -hmm. learning about the edges of life, you know? And when I can know that, when I can trust that that's part of what they're doing, they're accomplishing this, or I can ask myself, well, what was I doing at 15? What was mm -hmm. I doing at 17 to figure out myself? It helps me to be like, oh, I'm here just supporting your development. You know, and of course you're going to fall and have to figure out how to pick yourself back up again. I'm going to be the one standing here saying you can when you, right. feel like you can't, but, um, but it's your job. This is yours to do. I can remember saying to my kids, I did this already. You know, I wrote my sexual story already. You're writing yours. What do you right. want to say? Mm. How do you want it to play out when you're telling your partner later on, if you have a partner or your children, if you have children, how do you want the story to have gone? This mm. is yours. I did mine. I'm not going to tell you how to do yours. I'll tell you what I hope happens and doesn't happen, but whether yeah. you know, it's yours, you know, right. um, that's because I know that that's their job. Like, I know they got to do this, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a, I mean, that is the challenge of parenting right there. The spiritual challenge of parenting yes. Yes, is exactly. letting go. And it really does teach you that if you take on that, that uh, task, I wonder if we, you know, we just have a, a couple minutes left here. If, um, you know, I know, I, I know that trauma is, is a big issue, you know, yeah. buzzword, whatever you want to call it these days. Yeah. And I know that what I've seen, you know, a couple of my kids had more trauma than others and it, it changed their developmental ability to take these steps. You know, would you say anything to parents that, either know their kids have had trauma or, you know, potentially suspect that. And how yeah. would you change your expectations around that? Yeah, I would say that 
um, trauma, at least the way that I think we're understanding it a little bit now is it can stop you developmentally kind of in your tracks mm. right? It, or aspects of you in your tracks, right? So maybe the math part of you keeps going or whatever, but you have parts of you that get kind of stuck. And, and so in that way, if you can, if you can look and notice when are, when have events been happened in my child's life based on who they are again, more sensitive, they are, they're a highly sensitive child. They're going to be more like a sponge and things are going to hurt, hit them more versus bouncing off of them by a more resilient facing child. But is to then know that, that things might go a little slower in that area. If it was with friendships, if it was in relationships, if it was somewhere, things might go a little slower there. And you're really going to want to be providing a lot of patience and support, compassion, Mm -hmm. like, yeah, baby, of course, that's hard for you. That's probably going to take you a little bit of time to get over that or to work with that. What can we do to support you in that process, you know, and just know that that part will go, but what, you know, will take time. But, um, but I think it's important to know that um, what we know from trauma research is that trauma is going to be able to heal itself better if a child or adolescent or young adult, whatever, is well supported in their environment, that their environment is safe and supportive, then that gives them the ground to do the healing work. If it's still unsafe for any reason, then they're likely to have more trauma effects and they can't move into the healing phases of it until then. And so mm-hmm. we have so much trauma in our world. It's, it's stunning to me. And it's actually, I, I actually just finished a year long program studying psychedelics because um, I really have faith that that can be a place that we can help people move their trauma along a little bit faster and get them to a place where they feel liberated and are able to say, how do I want to live my life? And what feels right for me to do, you know, where they just feel safe to Mm -hmm. tribute in a way that brings them joy, you know? So, I mean, I would say on a personal note, I mean, I've noticed in my sample size of four kids, (laughs) I've noticed that, um, you know, the oldest has had more trauma. And so at 26, because I, she's the oldest, I had younger kids. I'm like, oh, she's going through now what her sisters went through at 15, 16, 17. And I'm like aware that it's a stage, not, you know, not something different. And I think, you know, it's beautiful to, to imagine that we could help to create spaces where teens, young adults, older adults could feel safe enough to do some of this work. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it could make such a difference because when we are living from our trauma, we're often not making the best choices for ourselves or for our communities or our families because we're hurting so much, you know, our reactivity is we're just Mm -hmm. like a live wire. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe another book that you'll be. uh... (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. Well, I really enjoyed chatting to you and, um, you know, I hope people will take some time to, to look up your website, Tina Shermer Yeah. Um, and check out, you know, the amazing work you're doing the books. I think you got at least two that you mentioned. Um, 
out there and uh, it seems like you're really putting putting some uh important pieces out in the world for not only parents but even the young people coming up you know might find this something like this conversation interesting because they're like oh I do that yeah. <laughs> I can get there I'm gonna be a parent in a few years hopefully and um you know yeah. be there and hopefully be a person that's adding to the the healthy relational uh you know connectivity that we we're trying to create in the world yeah. so anything yeah. any last words of, of well, I would just I just one of the things I thought of as you were talking is that uh, it's been fun for me to hear from people that don't have children who picked up the shameless parenting book and said oh I could see I was normal there and I was normal right. there and I Oh, and I actually got that kid book for me to read. And it's right. so helpful. And they were doing all this kind of healing, reparenting work because they didn't, they just didn't know, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, and so that started at least some liberation on their, on their uh, path. So, which is kind of good. I like that. Um, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure to talk. So thanks for joining the well. Pleasure for Health uh, podcast and uh, YouTube channel. Uh, you can find out more about me uh, on pleasureforhealth.com. And um, I look forward to potentially maybe down the road having another conversation. Great. I would love that. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much for having me.